Hello and welcome to Kiss My Black Side with me, Brenda Imanis. This is a celebratory look at art from a black perspective. In this show, we talk to some brilliantly talented creatives who have made their mark in the world of dance, film, music, theatre, fashion and the visual arts. We discuss their work and inspiration and then we get to do a little deep dive on issues related to their specific art form. And as we're talking, we figured it would be nice to end each programme with a specially commissioned spoken word tribute to our chosen topic, which in this episode is the visual arts. This podcast is produced by Free Spirit Productions Limited and brought to you by Sadler's Wells. Sadler's Wells is one of the world's leading dance organisations and in 2022, they're celebrating work by black dance artists with Wells Seasoned, a year-long programme of live performances, dance films and more from black choreographers, dancers and artists of colour. I'm really excited to have two wonderful guests from the world of the visual arts joining me today. My first is someone that I've been watching with awe, and once I met him, confirmed that he was as funny as he is talented. Artist Curtis Holder creates the most mesmerizing images using graphite and colored pencils. His main themes focus on people and the human form, creating the most unique and original images of his subjects. In 2020, Curtis won the Sky Arts Portrait Artist of the Year Prize, a national portraiture competition televised in the UK. My equally amazing second guest is as passionate about being a champion of the arts as I am. Polanyi Tajuddin is a curator and founder of Black Blossoms, a platform which promotes black women artists and creatives by hosting regular exhibitions throughout the UK. In 2020, she launched the Black Blossom School of Art and Culture and will now be running short online courses titled Art in the Age of Black Girl Magic. Welcome, guys. Hello. You've beat me up now, so if I'm now not funny, I'm going to get completely slated. You know that becomes <laughs> your problem and not mine. Oh, <laughs> really. You've I'm never not been funny off. as long as I've known you, darling. So I really don't think that's going to be a problem. But what you are is exceptionally talented. And I was going to start the conversation with you, asking you what you've been up to since um, winning Portrait Art of the Year, because I know that has been quite a thing for you. I want to go back first to your previous incarnation, which was teaching. Yeah, I was a primary school teacher for like 15 years. And what I realise is every career I've had has been an excuse to draw. And weirdly, I've gone through many things. I can't, you know, some of which I cannot speak about uh, (laughs) here. That's for our private business. But (laughs) Have you still got the pole in your living room? Yes, I have. Thank you very much. (laughs) I've got the pole, I've got the G-string, I've got it all. I've still got the castle. But that, again, is for another time. Uh, but, yeah, I, every, every career has led me to this point because it was just everything I did was an excuse to draw and finally ended up as a primary school teacher because I think, weirdly, you draw every day. You draw every day and it's... It's just so magical being in, a, in an environment 
where there are young people at the beginning of their life journey. And hopefully you have that positive influence in order for them to just carry on being who they are, which I think is sometimes pushed to one side in education because there's so much other stuff going on. For me, it was about recognizing and seeing who they were and help them to be that for the rest of the rest of their lives. Because as we well know, there are gonna be times where we are buffeted from pillar to post. Should we be this, should we be that? Should I be doing that? Should I, should I be doing this? Usually influenced by external uh, pressures of all types. And I think, I think for me, it was important to help them to understand actually this is who I am and I need to walk through this world trying to be the best version of that whatever that is and you know careers or, or hobbies or you know whatever you want to do is part of that you know traveling journey and shouldn't be confused for the core essence of who you are and um, I loved it. I absolutely love it. And I do miss the children. I really but do. Speaking of who you are, who or what helped you to take yourself seriously as an artist and make the decision to make that your profession? Well, do you know what? Um, first and foremost, it was my, my parents. I've got, to, I've got to thank my parents because they were, I now come to see, quite unusual <laughs> in as much as they weren't, pushy in in any shape way or form and understood that um I was a creative being uh, and whatever that meant they just let me get on with it and I and and I think I think having parents who one from Jamaica <laughs> and one from Barbados obviously bizarre mix as we well know you know we'd be going to parties and uh, my my mum would often be harassed by how 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 have you met this small island man? <laughs> <laughs> the usual the usual debate. But um, and he was a complete atheist, and my mother was high religion. And what that showed me was, do you know what? There is love in everything. You can do anything. Doesn't matter about those things that seemingly pull you apart, they actually strengthen who you are and give you, you know, a very open-minded childhood. I think I had a very open-minded childhood compared to a lot of the people I knew back then. Uh, my dad, very gentle, very gentle guy. Um, and it's a very a huge mixture of people around, of different types of people, different races, well, not different ethnicities, I would say, and um, and sexuality as well. My dad had like gay friends, <laughs> and there was a lot of Irish as well around because my mum was a nurse as well. So first and foremost, I think it was their ability to let me just be, and uh, my brothers are quite, um, they're quite academically minded i'm not saying that i wasn't but they were you know little geniuses when it came to things like maths <laughs> so how much did your how much did your caribbean roots have an impact on your art practice or did it 
did it? Did it have, do you know what? For me, very early on, my ability to make marks and draw and create was a way of me understanding who I was and how I fit because I grew up on an estate in Leicester where there were no other black people. Um, and that was purposeful. My mother, um, they wanted, apparently my mother wanted, they wanted to send us to another estate. And my mother said, no, we're not going to that estate because um, it's predominantly black. And we, she wanted us to be in an estate that was closer in, in what she thought was more of a more affluent area, which is, that didn't really make any difference. But no, it was, it was great, I loved living there. But I think art for me was a way to just connect with my surroundings in a way that didn't make me seem threatening, or it was a way of me mixing and being part of groups that I wouldn't necessarily have been able to join or be a part of or observe if I hadn't got this artistic ability, this skill, and it seemed to put people at ease. So which came first, the chicken or the egg? I don't really know, but my drawing and my ability to draw is so much a part of me. I don't know where the art practice begins and, 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 and Curtis ends, if you know what I mean. It's always been it's the, the first thing I can remember doing before writing or spelling, it was drawing. And I say, so I think that my art practice has, has evolved as, as, as I have, as a way of, of observing the world, communicating with the world, and just trying to find some kind of place and understanding of what's going on and who I am. So I don't know whether I could separate the two. Does that make any sense? My mind's waffling. Like it, a, it does make sense. So I'm going to move on to um, Belanley here because education formed a part of your career path as well, didn't it? But uh, you're in a very, very different way. You went into education initially? So um, I studied at University of the Arts London. I actually studied public relations um, at London College of Communication. And it was my aim to go into politics and policy um, and I think being in a creative environment really opened up my eyes to all the things that state schools don't open your eyes to. So from illustration to photography, fine art, I was in all the campuses. And so in my third year, I ran for a sabbatical position in the student union um, as education officer, because it kind of went with some of the political aspirations that I had like being a sabbatical officer leads into a lot of civil servant jobs and things like that so I was really interested in like developing that kind of practice of my work and when I was in that role um, I came across quite a few statistics that really affected me um, so I, yeah, I was elected to be sabbatical officer by my peers. So I had like 600 votes. It was really great. And then becoming education officer was 
like it was such a downward spiral so all my friends had all my friends had actually left because they've all we've all graduated now I'm still working within the union <laughs> and it wasn't as great as I thought and then these statistics were around how black students and students of color were less likely to receive a 2-1 compared to their white counterparts or get a first and um the attainment gap was something that really it shook me for a number of reasons firstly because I have a child and I thought okay this can have such a detrimental effect on securing jobs and what does this mean if you know you go to university you work really hard only to like be getting a third like what does this mean for students and I just came across so many different reports and statistics that the university had been compiling all the data and then I felt this like enormous pressure to tell the students that this is what they were more these were the issues they were facing um, and it was kind of my responsibility because as an elected sabbatical officer you are there to represent the needs of the students and not the university. And, you know, I'm, I was a really fun time girl. I, re, I, I, li I like politics, but, you know, there's always a time and a place for everything. And, <laughs> you know, going to a group of students and like trying to um, tell them that, oh, by the way, you're less likely to get a first because of the color of your skin wasn't something that I envisioned, especially, I was quite young actually. And yeah, it was like, I was being forced into EDI without necessarily wanting to do EDI. Mm -hmm. And- It happens. Yeah. And, you know, you just have, as a black person, you just feel the responsibility. And so, in whilst I was a sabbatical officer I started a campaign called UAL So White so it was like literally right after the Oscars So White and it kind of um yeah it just it really changed the game like all the students started tweeting their experiences there was coverage in the voice newspaper the university started to take it seriously and they started to implement some of the campaigning um, ideas that we were asking for. And I, by the end of like the campaign, I felt really, really burnt out and I felt really depressed. I like, I would Google my name and UAL so white would come up. And I thought, but I haven't even got a job in my industry yet. Like what the hell, like what is, you know, it just, I was so down and then, I just concerned that speaking out go against had gone against you. Of course, you. yeah, and I hadn't even started my career, and so um, to be honest, I kind of just really needed something that when I started Black Blossoms, it only actually started as a one day conference, um, and it was a safe space for me and black women who um, worked, graduated from University of the Arts, or was currently studying, studying at UAL. And it was just really meant to be a safe space conference. And then it just started to like grow into more events. Um, and then I had the opportunity to do um, an exhibition in their High Holborn campus. And, you know, I, the, um, I was able to choose students who had graduated within the last three to five years. Um, and it was such a beautiful exhibition. 
Um, this one had about 15 black women and non-binary artists, black non-binary artists. Um, and yeah, everyone was calling me a curator. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. And I was like, okay, what's a curator? This is cool. <laughs> and I and I and I do like art. And I really <laughs> and I realized I had the eye quite quickly um, to put artworks together really understand like the art world as well like I will say that I don't come from a traditional art background um yeah I went to university in an art school I've, I've done a course in an art school but I everything that I know about the art world has been because I've taken the time out to do either um, short courses I read a lot um I have just really been able and that's when I know some things are spiritual some things are not even meant to be understood like the way I've been able to understand the art world I meet people who've gone to university to study like arts management and I still kind of have a better understanding of like how the different structures of the art world work because I feel I feel it in my gut, I feel it in my bones. And I just, I, I was really, from quite early on in my career, I was able to understand art institutions and art markets, how they operate, how they support each other, the separations between them. And I definitely think that's been pivotal to the success of Black Blossoms because yeah, quite early on um, after I curated a few exhibitions, I started doing public program workshops with Tate, um, and they allowed me to bring my own audiences into that. Um, and it's just been that kind of understanding that I've had of how these kind of very separate entities that not meant to really work together, but do work and collude and collaborate etc because it's possible it's been interesting you listening to you talk about that because your are uh, your experience is almost similar to mine I didn't study art history or anything like that I just had a passion for it and I think you're the same it's when you feel it's the right thing yeah. for you I think the universe, the universe has put you in the right place at the right time however that might might be so I think that's quite exciting to hear and I think learning I think coming from an, what I because I used to sometimes feel insecure about not having a back up his, his, historical background and all of that but I think I was learning and what I was learning I was sharing with audiences and I think for me art is for everyone and there's sometimes absolutely. a conscious effort to make it elitist and keep people out absolutely and the key word there is passion um I knew I knew very little about the art world before I um uh entered the competition and and won it and and i think that objectivity that we're all talking about is an absolute blessing because we can actually go into an environment and and see it for what it is and not have the trappings of the traditional route or what we're supposed to say or what we're supposed to do we can look and go hold on a minute why is that happening and not that happening? Why, isn't, why aren't those two groups talking to each other? Because they are going to be able to help and support and raise each other up. But traditionally, they would be on opposite, opposite ends of the room. And, and weirdly, forces would be trying to keep them apart, which is, you know, nonsensical. But I think... I think passion is is the thing, and like you was that like like you were saying, Belanley, it's you feel it in your gut. You know what you need to do. You know what's broken, 
and and inherently you kind of know how to fix it. Yeah, I did this documentary, I don't know if you saw it, called um, Whoever Heard of a Black Artist, and it was looking at the, the, well, the void of, in, black, in British art history. Oh. And it was oh, a really yeah. revelation to me, partly, there was a part of me that was almost felt embarrassed because there were so many great names and mm. artists that I'd never heard of and didn't understand their experience or their plight. And to see their battle and to see the constant battle that they had just yeah. to be acknowledged and recognised. And some doing great work. And then I go to the Tate now and I go to the National Galleries and I see Kahinde Wiley hanging up yeah. in the National Gallery and I go to Soul of a Nation and it's packed out with um, black people really enjoying and absorbing art. We've got Hugh Lock on at the moment. We've had Labena here. We yeah. could do a roll call. So we could... It looks like things are do are changed radically but is that really the case Bolani? so thank you Brenda um so when I first started Black Blossoms it was a platform to highlight black women and non-binary artists so this was in 2015 um Labena Himid hadn't won the Turner Prize Sonia Boyce definitely like <laughs> we've got another seven years from 2015 until Sonia Boyce would go on to win the Golden Lion. So, you know, black women artists in Britain were very, very much unseen um, and unheard. Um, yeah. But now, if you look at the landscape, um, I was on Artsy, I've been on Artsy quite a few times this week, actually, just looking at the numbers that young black mm. women artists are doing on the secondary market. Yeah. Black British men are not doing the same in the contemporary art market. Um, mm -hmm. So we are definitely in a time period where black women artists and non-binary artists and queer artists as well, they are very much being, um, their work is very much being picked up institutionally. It's being picked yes. up by collectors. They're being noticed. And, you know, I was trying to think about why, why is it now? And I think, mm -hmm. Lynette Yeram Boyoche um, is definitely one of the artists who had who started to pave the way. So in 2013, you can start to see like her secondary art market sales. Um, and like there, therefore there being a lot of faith that from a collector perspective, that you know, this is buying artwork from black women artists is actually yeah. a good investment. Yeah. And once you have the investors on sides, <laughs> the collect on side, they're the ones who donate artworks to museums. Like, you yeah. know, they're they're all it's it's a very interesting colluded little bubble, but <laughs> you, start <laughs> <laughs> you start to understand certain like, okay, this is why this artist is having a show at this space. And who's one of the main sponsors? I wonder how many works of so-and-so artists they have. And mm things like that so you know I think yeah the course that I teach so after I'd done Black Blossoms highlighting Black women artists and so forth etc and that's still one of the main missions of Black Blossoms in 2020 I launched a Black Blossoms art school um, and we've had a number of courses from um, a number of tutors so we've had um, Black British Art which was led by Lisa Anderson who is Cultural Archives. We've had the amazing um, Evan Ifakoye who's um, whose collective um, Black, Black Obsidian was nominated for a Turner Prize last year. They also led their course, um, Devotion and Spiritual Practice in Art. Um, we've had Richard Rawlins lead a course. So we've had really amazing tutors lead courses. Um, and I teach a course, course called Art and Activism in the Age of Black Girl Magic. So 
the main reason why I launched the school is because we have the secondary art market now really paying attention to black artists we have more black artists having institutional shows however if we don't have constant education about these artists then people are not going to be talking about them referencing them in their work and it's really 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 important that Black artists continue to take up space within an educational academia context. Like we yeah. want students in art schools to not just reference Sonia Boyce, but even younger contemporary artists that are coming up because the more references they have, it just, it keeps the cycle going. But how many books Picasso has had written on him you know five books written on a black woman artist is nothing you know we need to have more books we need to have more courses and as we know a lot of these art schools they don't have a diversity of tutors coming from different racial backgrounds so therefore they're only going to be talking about artists from their pool of networks that they know and that is one of the main reasons the school exists is to just make sure that Black artists and artists of colour continue to be part of the conversation whilst we're also breaking down who has access to knowledge and at the same time, who is a knowledge producer. You know, people assume that me as a young Black woman can't produce knowledge and um, give out knowledge to people because of my background. I'm a working class Black girl. I grew up in care so forth and so forth so I think people assume that I shouldn't be able to give the knowledge about the arts and things like that but my course art in the activism um that I teach it sold out three times at Tate no twice at Tate it sold out for the photographer's gallery we've got a huge partnership with Art on the Underground where we're actually delivering four new courses um, that respond to four of their new artistic commissions on the underground. So, you know, there's definitely an appetite for Black art, Black art education. And, you know, this is the time to really lean in and extract and give as much as we can as cultural producers. And, yeah, that's mainly what I do. It's so exciting. Curtis, you are currently, well, speaking to you from, taking up space at the National Theatre as their first artist in residence. Now, that is amazing. Tell us a bit more about what what they're expecting of you and what you're doing. Well, do you know what? It's a collaborative effort because we're all running, you know, we're all running blind. I was introduced via um, the director, Dominic Cook, who's seen who had previously seen my work and he invited me to um like I said quite literally document the process from day one of um the play that he was directing which is called corn the corn is green I saw Um, that it's great it was quite do you know what I didn't know anything about the play beforehand and then he was telling me about it and I was thinking how how is I just didn't I was thinking right okay how is this going to play out and but the one hook that that really got me was education it was about education and not only education it was about the power that one person can have and in influencing a whole swathe of people and the knock-on effect that that can have and 
and it brings us you know it really ties into what what you were saying Blanley, about education and who the educators are and what those people who are being educated go on to do and and how they can bring their own flavor to whatever they do in the future you know and so what do they want you to do what are you doing what are you tasked with? well well what i'm tasked with is well what i've previously been tasked with um is whatever i like i will go and draw rehearsals and there were there were acting rehearsals there were singing rehearsals and there are all all of that as well as all the technical um aspects of of what goes into making a production so i would be uh, one day i'd be in the props department um watching them weld huge massive structures together and then i would be in hair wigs and makeup watching them apply and create magic and transform individuals it was quite an amazing thing to watch so i would be quite literally sitting there and i would be drawing i would be talking to them about themselves their process how they arrived at the national theater sometimes and it was very interesting to see the different energies different departments had and also what the individual makeup of that that particular department was it was really interesting because uh, especially in the props department there were a lot of women in the prop department who i didn't this is about my own prejudice a lot of women in the props department that i didn't really think were, i was quite surprised uh, but it was really really amazing it was a wonderful energy and it was quite insightful it's, Obviously, when you're drawing, um, you're talking to people about themselves. And the longer I, I was here, um, the more intimate the, the, the conversations became. And so some of them I can talk about, some of them I can't. Um, but that was my task. And I didn't see there being an end game to this because I just thought, well, I'm here because I really love being in this environment I really love capturing the essence of what people are doing and and capturing the essence of the individuals that made up this this play this production at the end of it and so it was quite interesting to see the journey of the play evolve and how how different it was from start to finish and and because I was seconded to one play it wasn't, it didn't limit me because they're so generous here. I was able to move around different plays and one play that was on at the same time as The Corn is Green was Small Island, which mm -hmm. was, was very interesting. Um, and I did sneak into the dressing rooms there and had some very interesting conversations. And it was a very bizarre and uplifting atmosphere to be in this place where it was theater and you're walking up and down the corridors and it's just black people everywhere you where you were yeah, and there were black people behind the scenes and in front of the scenes and not only that there were um because of the nature of the play there were there were 
there were people walking around dressed as you would see Windrush in generation. Pa- yeah. yeah. You'd see in the in the albums, the, the photo albums of the wedding albums of your parents and and all your in-laws. It's like, oh my God, you know, Jesus, this is this is this is them. This is this could be a photo, <laughs> this could be yeah. in the photo. And so it was a very interesting, different energy. So that's basically what I was doing. And then as the as the show progressed and I saw the end result, um, I then envisaged pieces I then could see actually this could be pieces that could be part of the show and so then with further talks we've decided that there is going to be a show um, at the end of the year and my my time here has been extended and I've been given my own um, working space so I hope the pair of you are going to come to the private view <laughs> of course we will Curtis will be documenting this experience at the National Theatre I know you'll be um, documenting and, and, and making a book out of um, Art in the Age of Black Girl Magic which is obviously important but considering the wealth of experience you have now um, what do you think needs to be done to, in terms of the ecosystem to support black artists and also audiences coming in and being invited in feeling that all these spaces all these institutions are for them um Oh, I'll let you start with that. For that Big minute. question, I know. Yeah, I, the one, the one that I'm going to tackle first is about audiences. I think, you know, you just got to have very interesting programs. I think public program teams, um, public pro- program teams are doing a lot with very tight budget, first and foremost, because a lot of public programmers are my friends. But I know they are doing a lot on tight budgets. And I will say that it's about thinking outside of the box of their programming and reaching out to cultural makers and shakers and tastemakers that don't necessarily sit in with the arts. So for example, I love Aloni. Um, Aloni is a young sex blogger from London. Um, They talk about a variety of yeah things and I always think why haven't and why hasn't a big institution asked Aloni to come and do a night like one of their lates at um, a, a gallery they're sitting on 300,000 followers do you know what I mean and yes. I think yeah. <laughs> you know we don't need to we don't firstly it doesn't need to we, we need to get rid of the idea of respectability politics and making sure that the person that we are going to give jobs to fit into this very narrow kind of, oh, are they, sh-? you know, just very <laughs> narrow definition. And I, I, I met, I, you know, I welcome the day when um, there are more uh, people looking at the art than are guarding the art that are black. But I totally agree with you. I think it's about the institutions inviting inviting a different kind of audience to celebrate and be part of that institution if they want if they want to 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 grow and to be um relevant they need to absolutely think outside the box and invite people because as you well know look look at the kahindi every time i went to the kahindi I've never seen so many black people in my life. In the National <laughs> Gallery, I know, I was yeah. shocked. I was so, shocked. I still remember Soul of a Nation as well, walking yes. around there and seeing it jammed with people so excited. When they say that 
oh, black people don't engage in the arts. I don't really understand what that means. And not all white people engage in the arts either. You know, it is a very niche with people who come to it. The audience is also niche. Yeah, and I just think things just need to... I have a lot to say about a lot of public programmes that happen alongside... (laughs) I I really enjoy developing public programmes as much Mm. as I enjoy it in an art exhibition. And I do think it's about really pushing the team to really think creative there's only so many times you want to hear the same people in conversation it's true it's lazy thinking that's all it is it's lazy thinking that they need to be more creative and outside the box and I'm gradually seeing that happen I want to play I want to do this with you because I always do it at the end of every podcast is my is the pass the baton section where I ask you to tell me if somebody that your has inspired you in the past or somebody that you currently think is worth an audience listening to or getting to know. So Curtis, who would yours be? Who would you- um Gaylene Gould? Oh yes, I know Gaylene. Gaylene well. Gould. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Great no, work. So yeah, I um we met um when I was 14 and um I asked her out. And as my husband now says, well, she dodged a bullet, didn't she? (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if she thinks that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, she probably does. She's known me since we were 14, but she's gone on to uh, recently. She's doing, um, she's set up, um, oh gosh, um, a new kind of initiative, um, which is about... It's a soiree, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite, and I asked her about it and she talks to me about it. And it's just this ever-evolving platform, just bringing people together and helping people to understand where their strengths are. But she's, well, I, I, I don't need to tell you what she's been involved in in the past, but she's, she's a real pioneer, I think, and also a real champion. Um, well, she's been a very personal champion for me, but also a huge champion for Black Arts. And I think she's always the one to watch. She's there. She always seems to be there way before anybody else. She's so my, from Galen yeah. Gould, Bolanli, who would you pass your baton to? So it's actually a a duo. <laughs> so it's two people, but they work together as a duo. They're a family. Oh, they're, they're brother and sister, and they run um, a community interest group called Flat 70, oh. um, which is based in Elephant and Castle. Um, and they exist exist to support cultural workers and artists of Caribbean and African descent and other marginalized identities as well. And what Flat 70 are doing is really, really cool. Um, they are, so when we talk about how do we get more audiences into museum, they've started a cultural club with Guap um, magazine where they have um, different um, museum days and gallery days. They've had really cool exhibitions in this space. And the way they came up with the space is that they lived on the Haywood estate that was knocked yeah. down uh-huh. and they lived in flat number 70. And then they went to go and open up a gallery just by um, the kind of tanks by the station and the oh, gallery's yeah. called Flatality, so it's an ode to that. And I'm really, I've just been watching them like on the slide. Like, I'm really, <laughs> you know, you know, like because they're young and like I just, uh-huh. I really enjoy that young creative energy and yeah. seeing like how much, how much the possibility is for them to expand 
to into so many different so many different avenues in the arts mm. so that's who I'd like to pass my baton on to um, is the brother and sister duo from Flat 70. Anthony Badu is the arts director and his sister Sanam Badu is the communications director. I just think that's what we need. We need more Black people to just come out, take up space, work institutionally, work with really cool um, new media platforms, then also have exhibitions that this is this is all of like that creative energy that inspires me to work and also it reminds me actually because when you're in these art spaces as a black woman you kind of sometimes you can get lost in the source and you kind of forget okay this is what I'm doing like you know Mm. I get invited to everything all the parties when I first started out that I used to be like oh my gosh I want to get an invite to that party I want to go to now like I just don't have the time (laughs) and then you also develop different relationships in the art world and your mission changes as well like starting the school has mean I'm very business focused now yeah seeing all the work that flat 70 is doing is just super exciting for me the work okay. you guys are doing is so exciting for me which is why i wanted you to join me on <laughs> kissing my black side i swear we could, i know we could talk forever and ever and I'm, I'm, I'm truly inspired by both of you and what you do and i think we've got exciting times ahead i want to thank you both for joining me for this cool creative conversation <laughs> <laughs> we end the thank program you. with a specially commissioned spoken word contribution by flow poet inspired by our visual art theme. So a big thank you to flow assist Natalie Stewart from the Flow Spoken Word Vortex for sourcing these brilliant spoken word artists for us. Now this wonderful piece is called We Are Art by Alchemy. Enjoy everyone and thank you for listening to Kiss My Black Side brought to you by Sadler's Wells. Ciao for now. Dimensions created in arts and crafts, presented in photographs. A celebration of shades that takes you to a place where you can feel the breeze. Oration on canvas, storytelling heard by eyes, watching to read, witnesses of truth. Proof, painted, printed, original, not repeated, a renaissance. Presenting the black experience with excellence, depicting the strength in our structures, architects shaping the richness of our cultures, new foundations, no vultures, just us and our real stories. Actual, in black, no whitewash, full colour, fists raised with vigour, black power, through artefacts, art. In fact, visual art, we are empowered. We celebrate and are celebrated. We heal and receive healing. We see and observe. We visualize, no need for lies. The truth will do. We are enough. We are art. Kiss My Black Side is a Sadler's Wells production.